This is Christ Presbyterian Church with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to the School of Discipleship series, Confessional Theology. This multi-part series introduces the doctrines, terminology, and methodology behind our Reformed approach and our communal confession of faith. Does the reality of suffering work against our knowledge of a good God? If not, what benefits, if any, can suffering produce? What do the scriptures mean when they call us to be joyful and content in the midst of suffering? Find out this and more on this episode of Confessional Theology. Well, would someone read the Heidelberg Catechism? This, this, uh, uh, the Heidelberg, if you're not familiar with it, is pretty much the same doctrinal system as the Westminster. It is written in a bit more of a um, subjectivistic manner, and I don't mean that negatively, of course. I just mean it's a little more of an affective uh, in the way. That I find that the Westminster is probably clearer when you're really trying to formulate doctrinal a doctrinal system, if you will, but but the catechism has a little bit of that empathy that comes through in the way it says it. And so this might help us get into this. This is a wonderful statement, though, of the doctrine of providence. If someone would read that. Can you see it pretty well? We can get better. There you go. What just immediately sticks out to you about this statement? Come to us not by chance, but by There you go. So there's a loving empathy that comes to us, and yet we don't obviously readily see that, do we? Uh, what sticks out to me immediately is just how uh, how uh, relevant this doctrine, I mean the relevance, it, it moves right into those things which are the ebb and flow of our life. The whatsoever things that comes to pass language that you'll see in the uh, Westminster Assembly, um, this Westminster's doc- statement is here described in ways heaven and earth, all creatures, leaf and blade, rain and drought, you know, fruitful and lean years. In other words, it's truly bringing the sovereignty of God into the liturgy of our life. Uh, the liturgy of our life, the, the, the liturgy, the work, and the, and the ebb and flow patterns of our life, which is why this doctrine is so uh, important. Because if we're talking about anything today, we are talking about how do we apply God to our lives on a daily basis. There's something very freeing about that. Mm-hmm. Do you really but it's 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 a it is very much it's a great great gift and a great great uh, doctrine. But it's not an easy doctrine. Um, we're going to talk about the issue of suffering today. We pipped on it. Y'all kind of enticed me last time. I know in the decrees to talk about it, but we're going to get into it a little bit more today. And and then we're going to talk about contentment and the the struggle of contentment. It might be one of the most uh, you know, godly of attributes, and yet it's probably one of the most difficult of attributes to live, contentment. 
So we'll, we'll bring it to those two, two topics. But let's look at the way Westminster describes it. Um, if someone would read that one, first of all, and we have about six or seven uh, statements to go through in Westminster. They're all very important. So we'll have to move at a pretty crispy uh, you know, pace through this. But verse chapter, I mean, section one of chapter five, would someone read that one? So notice particularly the preserves and governs. That, that really gets to the, the activity of providence uh, or, or the purpose, if you will, of providence in a, in a kind of a, a secondary sense. Ultimately, it's to the glory of God. But preserves and governs. Um, there's some beautiful passages. I've listed them there. By the way, just because of our time, we won't be reading them. It's kind of sad. We need to do that probably. If any of you would like to, to as you see a passage and you're curious and open it up and read it, uh, please let me know. I'd la- I'll, I'll let you read it. How about that? Um, so I'd love for you to do that. And, and, and just in case somebody might want to read Psalms 46, I mean, you, you know, you could do that too if you want. And I'd be happy to let you read that. <laughs> So, but let's. But when you get to it, let me know. But but let me, look at the. Let's ask some questions though of this. Hold it now. Why? why? I mean, th- these words were very carefully selected, of course, by an assembly. Remember, of over thirteen hundred people, and and over a long period of time, reviewing it and reviewing it and changing it and wordcrafting it. And so, why then, God, the great Creator? Why would we start talking about creation in the doctrine of providence? You wonder. Um, and here we have some passages that I've actually. Uh, put through God, his son, through whom also he created the world, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you see the connection? Why? What is it about providence that makes you want to start with creation in these statements? And these statements recognize that scripture does that. Again, Psalms 1 and 4, blessed be the Lord, O my soul, you are great. You set the earth on its foundations creation so that it shall never be shaken. You cause the grass to grow. Now he's getting into the grass to grow, cattle plants for people to use, da 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 da. Think about that. Why start this article of faith with a reference to God, the great creator? What is providence now? Well, clearly it's relating providence not to these supernatural acts of God, but to these natural acts of God. That is, acts of God that are utilizing the, what we would describe as the natural laws. Amen? And the order, and it indicates a present sustaining power in creation. So, so now what we're talking about is this God, doctrine of God applied to the ordinary ebb and flow of our lives within the created order. And the way in which acts of creation are not separate from God, but are actually the very hand of God to accomplish his sovereignty. That is huge. Can anybody guess why? It, it just spiritualized everything. It's got to be a beginning. Okay, but, 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 but importantly, what I want you to focus on, it just spiritualized everything. In a secular world, that is just uncomfortable. 
And there's a kind of spirituality that kind of wants to despiritualize some things so that spirituality really has to only do with these sort of sacred things that are set apart in a worship service or whatever. But, but all of a sudden, there is an idea here. I want you to get this. There is an idea here that would move you into the sacred and it can be in the most mundane of ways. Have any of you, uh, uh, Flannery O'Connor, you, you know Flannery O'Connor. This is something that she, of course, is incredibly astute about. She will write these short stories. I'm thinking of the collection of short stories. And, and she dedicates them to these mystery and manners, taking this idea of, of this idea that there is a connection between heaven and earth, and it therefore reinterprets how we experience earth. If you want to read beautiful prose of, in, in short story form, mostly, you know, get her short stories, read some of the stuff and notice the way she spends a story so that you believe you begin to see that there's a kind of sacramentalness imposed upon the ebb and flow of life. You, you seem like you've read some of her stuff. You'd agree? Yeah. And so uh, this is this is the first point I want us to really contemplate here today is do you f experience life that way? Where it's okay in this secular world to spiritualize everything. And it's not cool, as it's become cool, for Christians to kind of say, oh no, not everything's spiritual. And I mean that because I went through that. You know, there was a time when I spiritualized everything as a young believer for the first probably seven to ten years of my life, I then go off to school and begin to think, oh, come on, I'm tired of all this, this, this peanut butter and jelly Christianity. And, and I am, and I still am, by the way. Um, you know, this kind of lightheaded, you know, they didn't really think about stuff. And so there's a stuff, of, but one of the things that was a mistake is to begin to allow the soup of the intelligentsia around me to begin to cross me back over into a secular worldview where, no, God really isn't involved in the co color of my tie that I wear today. I mean, we used to play with that game in a kind of, you know, uh, elitist way. Like, some people really think God cares what color of God. Well, I don't know. There's a mystery there. I don't, I, somehow I don't think he really cares that much. But, but the point being is that I, 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 there's something wrong, though, about taking God out of our world and out of our life. And so I want to I empower you by this statement already. We're already doing pastoring here. But I want to empower you to, sex, to, to spiritualize everything. But now be careful. I didn't say revelatize everything. Providence is not an, an interpretive divine revelation. Just because I'm spiritualizing everything doesn't mean I can now draw a one-to-one -one corresponding conclusion from, you know, the leaf dropped, I was, you know, and therefore I should buy a car. You know, I can think of when I was a young Christian where I was spiritualizing things in a very dangerous way. Where I would be saying, God, give me a sign. Show me the way. Just do something. And I remember this. This just came back to me probably for the first time in 30 years, just right now. I'm walking down the street, and I'm, got, I'm, I'm literally saying, God, you know, show me something. Give me some. And I was thinking about whether I should do something, and I can't remember that one at all. And right there, the, you know, I'm, I'm walking down the street, and the street light comes on. You know? The other day, 
we were we were going through uh, <laughs> the we meet as pastors and do prayer together every Tuesday and in, in little prayer service and it's probably one of the special most special things we do and. And uh, we were reading in the scripture, and there was something about the demons. And right when the word demons came out, um, there was a, a, a an explosion. You remember New Haven had an explosion last week. You remember that? That's when that happened. And we all come on. <laughs> now, that's providence. I'm going to believe it's spiritual even. That God is involved in that. But I'm going to I'm going to I'm, I'm going to go short to say, well, you know, the purpose of that was to see something in a concrete propositional way. I'm going to I'm going to solve short of that. It's not a proposition. And so so there's but 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 that's my real point right now is to suggest that to you that that first of all, we're, we're getting into the doctrine of providence. And the first thing I want you to observe is that that it is a, an extension of creation by virtue of the way in which the created law, the natural laws, we'd like to describe it, is the mechanism through which God is governing all things. But here's the thing that you don't want to do. It's not the deist who just set the clock running and watches it run kind of, of, of natural law. It's God who governs the natural law in the manner in which it. So, so we're going to talk about that for a minute. Um, thus, all nature laws and how they work as, out specifically in the course of our lives are also decreed by God. Now, you were here last week. If you weren't, that's a part, that's one of the most foundational. The doctrine of God three and the doctrine of, of the decrees of God uh, four are the most foundational of this whole theology. If you haven't done it, go back and listen to it. But you that were here, I think most of you were, the decree, you know what that means, that God decrees. He has an authoritative power and knowledge that exercises itself on everything whatsoever that comes to pass. And we got into a lot of intensity with that. Here, that's extended to the natural law. And notice what they're going to do. Notice this other reformation we call it absolute all. God directs, disposes, governs not just some, but all creatures, actions, and things. Daniel 4 talks about this. Acts 2, the Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the knowledge of God. Why do you think I quoted that one? What's an all there? Was it evil that put Christ on the cross? Yes. Was it God that put Christ on the cross? Yes. Oh, y'all are good at that. Okay. And how are we going to explain that? If you it has a plan. sovereign, what's what, what's going to start? What do you what would you expect this Bible study to go to next? If you remember even the decrees. Well, let's read, huh? Oh, I was just going to say, you know, getting into that semi mystery that God mm -hmm. has decreed sin and evil without being a cause. Okay, there you go. Here we go. Does God's providence then sometimes use secondary causes? Of course, evil being within time and space, there is a cause, and it's and it's even the sin of humanity and the free will of humanity exercised under the decree of God. There's that mystery, but here, notice the way our confession will make sure that we don't miss that. Here's the section. Uh, read the section two for me, somebody. Although in relation to foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably. Fallibly, yet by the same providence, ordered them 
order them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. And that, may, that is such a powerful statement if you want to stop and slow down. Um, but hey, are there some words there you recognize? Any language that's familiar that we've seen before? Immutability, infallibility. Yeah, there, we're going back to God again. God applied. That's the doctrine of God, remember? So yes, we understand, here it is the mystery again, that there is a trans, there is an, a, a transnatural, non-created power that is present in the creation to preserve and govern all things pertaining to creation, and all things pertaining to creation are what the Westminster here describes as secondary causes. So again, why did we start with creation? Because we're looking at the doctrine of God as it relates to His omnipresence and omnipower and omniscience in, with, and through creation itself. What we might call natural law, what we might call secondary causes. But the key is they define those as secondary causes where humanism, if, this, if I want to, I hate using the word, isms word, they get so scarecrowy, but, but just for a minute, just what we sometimes will describe as a humanistic impulse is to see ourselves as the primary cause. And so again, there's nothing like the doctrine of God applied to the decrees and providence of God that's going to more challenge the pride of our sin, which wants to put us in the center of cause. And that's what we do in our salvation that would offend the cross every time. When we, you can bring this right to your salvation, you see, when you say, well, think about what you do when you want to insert us as somehow related to the first cause of my salvation, which is what we would do if we would still hold on to this notion that I must do something to be saved rather than to receive something offered to me freely by the, that grace which is in, given to me freely to receive it by faith which is a free gift of God. So that from beginning to end of our salvation to God be glory. But that's also going to be true about our life from beginning to end, from my birth to my death and all the ebb and flow things that we talked about, the way in which this doctrine wants us to get into the earthy things of when it rains and when it doesn't, when there's drought, when there's not, when there's blessing, when there's, you know, not all of those things to God be glory. And we're going to see how it affects us. So Ishmael Green puts it this way, there's no such thing under the divine government or providence as real chance or accident. And again, this is surely a cheering doctrine. Notice section three then, because it's going to go further. Now it's starting to distinguish itself from something. What's a miracle then? How does providence distinguish itself from miracle? Read this. Somebody read three. God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. So there we go. God is in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, which means the means of secondary causes, natural means. That's what they're referring to there. Yet is free to work without, above, 
and against them at his pleasure. So this is where we should distinguish between divine providence and a divine miracle. So someone asked me today, how's your son doing? And I very quickly said, as anybody in my position would, they're doing great. I found out today that I'm going to have a grand, another grandbaby and he's going to be a boy. Didn't know that, did you, Lisa? You, Lisa, already told you that. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I'm excited. You know, it's just a miracle. That's what I want to say. It's how I feel. Is it? It's not a miracle at all. I know it's going to just blow your bubble all over the place. And every time I go to see someone in the hospital and carrying with me my little black now phone, not my Bible, but my black phone with the Bible in it, and I pull out Psalms 139, um, and you read it, and it makes you say, this is such a miracle, so fearfully and wonderfully made in the mother's womb. And I feel that way. I feel it like a miracle. But it's not doctrinally. Now, my question to you, why, if it does, would that disappoint you? Is a miracle in your mind any less spectacular than providence? And if it is, talk to me about what presupposition you have that just might need to get canned. What would that be? Think about what we've done today. It's, it's hinted at. What do you think we're doing if we do that? Why would it be less spectacular that God would govern all things, whether through secondary causes or in spite of secondary causes? Is God less God? Powerful? What is it? Because it just has to do with our faith. And that would be a problem of faith if we don't see the supernatural power, work, love, justice, all those definitions of God in everyday life. I call it secularism. It's secularism again. It's crept in. That's why I've been pushing this really hard. We are more secular church people than we think. How we have found these ways to pocket God out in ways that it's now, so you come, so here's the irony. So you come to someone who's a big fan of miracles and believes in miracles and miracles, miracles, I'm praying for a miracle and blah, 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 blah. And wow, what a spiritual person. No, it's a pretty secular person who's living their world as if God is somehow not special and powerful and real as much when it rains as when the sun which is supposed to come up is going down. I don't know. Come up with a miracle. <laughs> it's just as much God. Can God do miracles? You bet. Now what I do here, and you can do some of this on your own, and you can read some of these uh, uh, texts that I've, I've quoted from, but, but here's just some of the ways that, that, that theologians, uh, philosophers have tried to represent this, this issue we're talking about here. So for instance, what is a miracle? You know, John Locke would say, oh, it's that which is above reason, but not contrary to reason. Uh, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. 
though he's right. It is above reason. And he's right. It's not contrary to reason. I don't think miracle is unreasonable if you start with this presupposition of God is immutable, infinite in power, all those things. So Christianity is never to me unreasonable. And it's always something that we can't reason. And in that respect, I totally believe that John Locke is on to something. But what I'm not really in, in, liking about this definition is that, that, but you don't define a miracle based on how I understand it. I'm a little uncomfortable that trying to go back to that Descartes revolution and say where I, it starts with me and how I can process it. I don't think that's what he's doing. He's, I think he's a good man doing good things here. But So then here's some other ways to think about it. Some people have described, and this is C. Brown in his history and faith, that, that a miracle, you know, he's distinguishing what he'd call con, uh, a coincidence concept that, that where there's no apparent violation of the laws of nature, but a conjunction of circumstances that is so unexpected, improbable, and beneficial to at least suggest a supernatural ordering of the circumstances. In other words, I guess he's describing miracle here as a kind of unique directing of providence, given a certain set of circumstances. So this is the kind of person that says, I mean, what are the chances that the stars would line up in a straight line like that on right the day when I was trying to skip them across the sky? Wow, a miracle. No, providence. But here's an illustration point. That's what happens all the time in your life. That's what happens all the time. I'll tell you, some of you know the history of our church, and if not, I really hope you read it because it's a pretty amazing history. And you could say it's a pretty miraculous history. I mean, I mean that seriously. There are moments that are just like miraculous. Um, one of those moments is, is a situation where we were in a building project here. We were into a $3.5 million project. We all were putting our kids' education in bonds and telling our grandparents to put our kids' educations in bonds. People were just, you know, out there. Every member in our church was out there raising support for this thing. And um, beautiful, beautiful days. And uh, we came up with this ability. We got into debt so far over our head, but of course we did it knowing that we have a, you know, we have a collateral. We, if we can't pay it, we'll just give it back to the city and say, hey, have fun with our church. You know, you can do something with it. So we felt good about it. And we went into a situation believing in God to do something, a miracle. And, and yeah, I believe, yeah, we believe in miracles. Okay, fast forward, um, you know, we, we get into a situation and, and uh, the, the fire marshal after 9-11 comes in here and redesigns our building and we're half building it and then we're into it and he adds 800 and something thousand dollars into it. It's a true story. You probably, some of you have heard this. And I go into the Jeremiah Funk on Monday morning and I'm just cussing God. I, you know, I pull myself together, stand in front of a congregation the next week with a smile on my face. Here's our plan. You know, that's my job. I'm giving you a plan, you know. And, and everybody's kind of, yeah, let's go. Rally. And it was a great, great moment in our church. Everybody rallied. And then I go home the next day and I go hunting with my dog and I'm just cussing God out again. Meanwhile, there's a guy calling my phone here in the office. Uh, I didn't know it, you know. I, I used to hunt every Monday morning. I shouldn't say anything. There's somebody who'll kill me for doing that. But, um, and uh, I come in, and there's a phone call. Blank. Hey, this is Blank. Um, he's in another state. I've been praying about your work, and you know, and you know, because I've been sending support out and stuff like. Yeah, I had some's come up, and I think I'm going to be able to give you guys some. So I want you to call my accountant. He's going to tell you what to do. And he called the accountant, and I'm always here. You know, oh God, please don't do this again. Don't put this little care to twenty thousand. Just to get my hopes enough so you can dash me again. I mean, this is after ten years of church planning. I'm getting pretty tired. And uh, 
And he says, well, yeah, this guy really is, is, is must really believe what you guys are doing. And he's got some stock. He's going to give it to you. And, and, uh, and, and, and I'm going to, you know, and, and okay, okay. And I'm really, I'm literally sitting there skeptical and I just don't want to hear it. Don't do this. 20,000, what's 20,000 going to give? And of course, that's like great. If you think about it, it's a lot of money. Well, it's gonna, if you sold it right now, it'd be $850,000. Huh? And we just had an 850000 more or less deficit? Are you kidding me? Now listen to this story. That's not, that's not even half of it. Okay, go back to the session. Hey guys, we just got given some stock worth $850,000! And we're just going crazy. Okay, let's, let's, let's get it. Let's put it in the market. We all agree we're not going to play games with it or anything like that. Just go. We come up and I, but I love, trust these guys. They do this stuff. I don't do it. Tell me what you want me to sell it for. Well, Preston, I want you to, let's just go and say let's sell it for this. But, you know, we're not taking it. But, but at the end of the day, you talk to the guy. And if he tells you something else, you use your judgment and you do it. And I wish they hadn't done that. But we did. I did. He thought we were a little too high, go a little low. I said, okay, go it. He put it on the market. I go to watch the aftermarket, you know, and I'm going, oh, you know, I'm not sleeping. Did I have little faith? I should have believed in my session. I should have believed in my session. I made such a bad mistake. They're going to kill me when, you know, when, when we lose like $15,000 or something for it. And um, so then again, that night, literally, this is no lie, um, the market crashed. Absolutely crashed. I have a photograph of the, of the thing. And in that market, right before it crashed, it went zip, and it went from 30-something dollars. It didn't stop going down until it went to $2.50. This was a big, 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 big crash back then. I'm not lying to you. And it stayed there forever. And if I told you the country, company, you'd know what it is. I don't even think it exists anymore. And uh, anyway, the guy calls me up first thing in the morning. You must believe, there must be a God in heaven, Pastor. He says, in 30 minutes, your stock's sold, which is phenomenal, right before the close of the bell, and it dropped. Now, is that a miracle? And that's true. I got proof, just so you know. <laughs> um, and that's how we, we, we had the, got over the bed and we got this building. But is that a miracle? Timing. Yes, good in the market. Was it a miracle? Y'all aren't able to say it. Y'all don't want to say yes or no, do you? Fast forward to 15 years, I'm at General Assembly. This happened not long ago. And someone was saying, you know, God, you know, and we started Mission Anabena with another $3.5 million that was, was given to us. Was that a miracle? So that's two times that God gave us $3.5 million. Was that another miracle? That happened in two years. I'll tell you where I really felt that the most. So now I'm, I'm, I'm walking in General Assembly, and somebody comes up to me that I was in seminary with, and he says, Preston, you know, how you doing? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And he says, uh, you know, I, I've heard about this Mission Anabana thing you guys are doing. That's really crowded. Tell me a story about that. And I very briefly told him the story of what God had done. And, and, um, and he says, uh, wow, you know, well, uh, how did that happen? How, you know, he started asking, how, how did that money happen? And it, and it was just this moment when, when you could tell he would be very disappointed that it wasn't, you know, coming out of fire or something. And, um, and it broke my heart. And I, and I said, so I said to this person, I said, and there's some reasons why I won't get into it, because God wasn't getting glory anymore. Because it was a bigger miracle 
if you, it was a bigger God to me that didn't do a miracle. Because if you think about how this money came to us, it, it started back when people were thinking about what vocation to go into when they were in college. Or it started before that when they got into college. It started before that bef when, I don't know, when they were born and they had an aptitude for certain sort of things that enabled them to invent a certain sort of thing, that enabled them to go to a certain sort of college, that enabled them to do this, that enabled them to do that, and somewhere in there they got saved, and then and this, and then this. And all of these things, there must have been, if you stop to think about it, probably 300 major stars that lined up in the sky, and the last star was CPC, at least in my mind. <laughs> What's a bigger miracle? But it's not a miracle. It's providence that would line up the stars that way. Are y'all buying this, I hope? Because this is why the secular worldview is so dangerous. It takes God out of life until he does something really crazy. It takes him off the throne of our lives even if it puts them on the throne in this little special miracle service. That's that, that then takes them back off the throne, we go back into life. And so this is, this is an amazing thing. So De Hume uh, says, you know, it's no, it's, it's downright a violation of the law of nature is what it is, a miracle. And it does happen, we, we call things like that incarnation. God, you know, raising Lazarus from the dead. Um, there are things that we believe in that are miracles. All the works of redemptions are miracles, and we'll go into that. But that's what we are. So here's the observation. Number one is no less divine than number two. And, um, and as Hodge would say, thus the order of nature and miracles, instead of being in conflict, are the intimately correlated elements of one comprehensive system. It's a wonderful way to say it. They're all just God. This classical understanding of miracles, I'm not going to go into this, but typically miracles are reserved for redemptive moments wherein they are signs as to authenticate or validate uh, the prophet of God. They are not meant ordinarily to be freak shows, that's for sure, uh, or things of that nature. I, I'm going to let you read through that. There's some, again, some um, uh, references there. But just, uh, and, and we'll, we'll edit this out just a little bit. I'll give you about five minutes because I can't stand doing this like this. Though I'm doing it for the tape so it doesn't get laborious. And he'll tell you it's really horrible to watch when everybody's talking. You can't hear what they're saying. So sorry about that tape, but we're going to do it. Um, but very briefly, what are y'all thinking right now? I can't stand this. We've got to let you guys talk. What are you thinking? What's, what's on your mind? Yeah. I, well, I think yeah. one of the other things about identifying anything great and out of the ordinary Think about the think about the implication that we secularized that car accident because I need God providence to be able to process that car accident in a manner that I'm not going to go into despair because all the options are, are horrific chance dualism or whatever. 
<laughs> okay, well, that's just, that's right. And Satan could be a secondary. And Satan, who is a created being, remember, he's not eternal and infinite and all that stuff, could be the secondary cause. Right. You snuck around behind what you want to say? Back where God couldn't see him. Yep. I'll Go for it. Mm-hmm. What examples of miracles mm-hmm. would you provide? And immediately, the first mind is possibly Jonah, or you know, whether it be mm-hmm. a whale, or mm-hmm. That's right. What, what well, the exa- if, if there's two, I could read your question two ways. What examples within redemptive history? And I would say, well, all of redemptive history follows the pattern of a word, miracle, word, moment. You know, the, the, there's a God begins to make a revelation, uh, a promise, uh, speaking through the prophets about that which would happen. It happens miraculously, and I mean now, y'all know the difference, not providentially, miraculously, like Red Sea kind of miracle. And then, uh, and we believe those are historical time-space miracles. Don't let anyone hear me say otherwise. Um, and then there's going to be a word of interpretation as to related to that and its implications for the life of the, the, of the Church of Christ. So your whole scripture is a work of word, miracle, word, event. The miracle being both a salvific event and a signatory event. That's the key word. They're called signs in the gospel for a reason. They are signifying, they're pointing you to something but outside of themselves. The miracle was never meant to be what got your attention. What got your attention is the God who works miracles, or the Christ who worked miracles. It was, it was to vindicate that Christ is indeed the Messiah, or it was to vindicate in the works of the Acts, Acts of the Apostles. And it it's, kills me that we've lost Acts, because Acts is, is a gospel. It's the gospel of Christ's ascension ministry that we now understand are the rest of our ministry today, as we celebrated last Sunday in such a beautiful way. And so, so, so first I would answer the way you did and start pointing to those miraculous signs and wonders given to the prophets, leading to Christ, the ultimate prophet of God, uh, all of which is the, is the result of our redemptive history. Now, outside of redemptive history, we're talking now post-Pentecost acts into our worlds, right? Um, do we believe in miracles? Sure. But we don't expect them. Find me in the New Testament. When you get into the instructions about spirituality in, in the New Testament, find me where miracles becomes a kind of, of uh, essential for faith or for the work of God or any of that kind of thing. It's not that we don't still believe in miracles, but ordinarily God doesn't choose to work through miracles until there is a great redemptive work in redemptive history. The great miracle we're expecting next is, of course, the miracle of Christ's return. But I will make an exception. It is the miracle of the church. You know, if you understand what, happened, what's, what the Gospels are teaching you, what Paul is saying in Ephesians, and again, I reference you to the, the service that we had last Sunday night, then there, he is saying there is a genuine miracle wherein the ascended body, glorified body of Christ, is mystically united to this body on earth, wherein these ordinary secondary causes of the means of grace given to the church are in in infused or infused with the grace or miracle of God in a manner that can bring about conversion and sanctification. So there is a miracle behind every conversion. 
That is a miracle. So that would point to that. If you have come to a place of saving faith, we know that's because you were born again. Your nature, it wasn't that you were sick and you got some good medicine. It wasn't that you were, you know, uh, in error and you got a good teacher. It wasn't that you needed to be convinced and you had a good lawyer. And the Holy Spirit has often been compared to being a lawyer of God, teacher of God. You know, no, he is the creator God when you got born again. He created you anew, gave you a new, new nature that you were able to believe in Christ. So there's your miracle. Sanctification's a miracle. That work of God's grace that enables us to more and more put to death our sins and put to life a newness in Christ, that's a miracle. But see, I bet I'm surprising you because we didn't expect me to say it. I'm so glad you asked. This is an excellent question. I'm so glad you asked it because... What about illness? Can God miraculously heal illness? We believe he can. But in James, he makes it pretty clear that the expectation is when the elders lay hands on them and anoint them with oil uh, and, and the, the prayer of a righteous will be answered, the answer to the answer is he starts talking about the resurrection. So it's true you could be miraculously saved. It's true that God, through the prayers of our prayer service, let's say our, our, our healing service, will 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 use prayers, we talked about two weeks ago, that prayer becomes the secondary cause wherein he orders providence in a manner that a doctor heals you. And so if, if, if someone comes in this room and says, you know what, we prayed for God's healing and, and, and I've been healed of cancer. I'm going to say that's providence. And that is just as divine as if it were a miracle. And now God uses secondary causes like, and think about what, what, how, in some ways I'm more enamored with providence. It would be, it's easy. It's a single, it's a single act of God to do a miracle. He says, it's, it's a miracle of creation. You know, let there be, there is. It's simple. That's a simple transaction for God. Very simple. I'm, next. Let me finish this next part. Providence? Let there be a humanoid born of the womb that has the capacity and the aptitude and the interest and all the nature nurture stuff that goes on to this person being a doctor one day. I wish Tanella was here. And let this doctor have skill on the table and let this doctor one day on the table have a boy or a girl where the church has been praying for their healing and let that doctor use that and they will, God brings all those things together. I'm really, really, really starting to get enamored by providence is a great divine work of God that, was, was, that, it, that involved transactions that were hundreds and hundreds brought to my little boy, let's say, who got healed. Praise God. I think he's working through all things. Yeah. But the, the point, but like get, getting, Back to the revelation issue? Yeah, the revelation issue. Yeah. So 
and yep. And here's my response to that. Let's just say, for instance, when I was in a church, when I was in a, uh, I was doing a, uh, my last year in seminary, there was a church that lost its pastor, has gone through saying, I had, long short of it, I was assigned by our presbytery to go be the interim pastor of this church for a year. And it was in Braintree, Mass. And um, I went to this church. It was really a hurting church and really just needed pastoral care and love. And it was a great experience for me. And, and I really love that congregation to this day. Um, but one of the things that was happening in that church is this whole church somewhere, somehow, had gotten a sense of, of miracles, I mean, of, of, of dreams, and, how, and, and wanted their to, dreams to be inter interpreted. Excuse me, I shouldn't have been drinking this coffee. And so I, they said, would you interpret this dream? And I prayed about how I would handle that. And I said, okay. Um, I, I used to have hours right after the Sunday was one of the main days I could be there because obviously I was in seminary and I had a college ministry at the time as well. So I'd stay Sundays afterward and, and meet with people, you know, in pastoral, you know, appointments. And I said, we'll set up a point. We'll sit down and talk about it. And over and over, these guys would come in here and say, you know, I had this dream. Could you help me understand it? It really kind of unnerved me. Now, how would I handle that? Let's put our doctrines together here. I didn't under, I, I didn't secularize the dream. I didn't say, oh, come on, you just got to forget about your dreams. They're meaningless. Okay, I didn't do that because I, everything we just said right here, I didn't do it. It was a providence of God. But I treat it as a providence of God. Not a revelatory event, but a real event that, that God intends evidently, because this person is now either petrified by it or thinking about it or something, it got their attention, that somehow there's, and so what am I looking for? I'm saying, so what I want to do is say, your dream is obviously significant. I would embrace the fact that it's happened, just like I would if they'd had a car accident, just like I would have if they'd stumped their toe. <laughs> Let's ask God to show us what would be a faithful response. That's the words I'd use over and over. What then would be a Christian, biblical, faithful response to this dream? What can we deduce by inference from Scripture that we could learn from this? And it's got to be a good and necessary inference, as we talked about now three Bible studies ago, right? And I said, okay, let's talk about it. Well, clearly God's got your attention. And clearly it's about this fear, let's say. So how would we bring God, the, the hope of the gospel and this Christian faith to bear upon this fear that you have about, say, losing your child? I don't know. can't remember any of them right now. You see what I'm doing? I'm, I'm not dismissing the providence of God. Quite the contrary, I'm honoring it. But I'm not dismissing the soul, the, the soul of Scriptura. I'm not dismissing the Scripture as my only rule of faith and practice. I mean, unless he were to write in the sky propositional language, that would be a miracle, by the way. <laughs> I'll, I'll get you that one. I don't know. Maybe it wouldn't. Clouds, I guess, could do it. I don't know. Um, then I'm not going to have a propositional statement that I'm going to say, thus saith the Lord. I believe, as we talked about the Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture was a miracle. I don't believe that, you know, and so I'm waiting for another inspiration of Scripture moment before I'm going to have this clear propositional statement. The Lord is telling you to go and, and take your child to the hospital right now because they're going to die tomorrow. I could say you're really afraid of something. Your child is sick. It's probably a wise thing to go take your kid to the hospital. And I can tell you there's been some very significant events in my life, in my wife's life of divine providence that, that awoken us to something or allowed us, I mean, I can take of a situation where, um, I think Lisa Tweed knows about it, but where, where the death of, of someone my wife really loved uh, was preceded by a nightmare. 
which we talked about that morning of how to process. And then that happened. I'm sorry, that is providence, but that is some significant big time providence. And I'm gonna take it that way. But I didn't take it from that, that, that say dream that um, God is telling you your, your blank is gonna be killed today. But I couldn't say that. Follow up. Um, so this is partly, I have a question, but in, in mind I have the Middle East where there are lots of yeah. Muslims who have yep. dreams. And they get saved. Yeah. I wouldn't call it revelational. I would call it illuminational. And so there's a doctrine we talked about, rumination and revelation. Were you here for that? Well, I would call that, again, providence can be illuminating. But again, I'm going to the scripture to find out what to do with it. So presumably, and as I've heard some of these stories, this is what happens. I have a dream. I had this dream and had this vision of blah, 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 blah. And the evangelist is going to say, well, let's take you to the scripture. I don't, you know, and, and say, well, here's, you know, if, if this dream is is somehow related to you as, is something saving or whatever the dream was, I can still say, I can tell you, I'm not going to tell you necessarily what that dream was, but it sure has opened the topic of what would a savior look like if he were to come to you. And here's what we believe. And it would be that providence event of the stars lining together where here's a person who's open and receptive and desiring for God to save him. And the providence of a dream is such that you can then. So I see dreams as getting our attentions in a way that moves us to the scripture to discern what the scripture would say about that which I am now thinking or worrying about. So, there, so I want you to hear what we've done. It's not an either or. We have, we have spiritualized all things whatsoever that comes to pass. And I'm sorry, you're not a super Christian to do that. That's just what good old-fashioned faith in Christ means. We, we do that. But on the other hand, we're not going to now revelatize all things whatsoever that come to that. That's a great question. Let's move on to a couple of things. We've got about 15 minutes here. And... Um, and so let's, let's, uh, let's talk about contentment and suffering. Look at number five. Who is going to read that? Don't tell me y'all aren't having fun. This is downright fun to do theology. I'm sorry. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes lead for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, chastise them for their former sins, or discover and the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and So here we begin to move toward, uh, we make a big transition. It's okay. What is the purpose of providence ultimately? Well, what, is, what do you see here? The ultimate purpose of providence is what? To draw us into a more intimate relationship with God. Everything that happens is meant to do it. And to glorify Him ultimately. The what? The hidden? I'm, I'm, I'm sure to look for that. Cleaving? Leave. Leave. What line is that? Okay, so that's a very good question. Thank you. Um, certainly, let's, what, this is a great example where you interpret Scripture with Scripture. <laughs> certainly, we don't interpret that to mean that He leaves us in the sense that He's no longer present in the world or in our life. We just, the very same chapter just told us that never happens. 
that is all omnipresent and that all things whatsoever. So there is nothing what we know he doesn't mean this mean we know this doesn't mean that there are certain things where God is absent. So what else could it be? The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations. It's not God leaving us. It's God here allowing us to be tempted and to fall into temptation, etc. But it's the creed of God to do that. So here's that very, 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 you, you really were astute. Here we are back to that mystery where we talked about it last uh, two weeks or a week ago. Where there is this idea that, that, that while God is not the author of sin, He doesn't Himself tempt anyone with sin. He does all the same decree sin and temptation and, in a manner that, that therefore He cannot be present in that sin. And again, that's, that's what we've seen in the passage we read earlier. I mean, when Herod is quoted as, you know, the, you know, the sin of Herod is the arm of God and our, justifi our, our justification ultimately, it is not as though God, you know, how do I say it, was the killer of Herod, but he was the one who decreed Herod to be killed. Or I mean, Jesus to be killed by Herod. Okay? It's a mystery. It's the mystery between the first causes and the second cause. Free will is the second cause, but it is free. Within time and space, it is a free will. Again, last week reminding you, but it's never an absolute free will. It's a relative free will, or free will that is relative to the creation order of our own being. But outside of that creation order, there's a decree and a power that ordains whatsoever that comes to pass, even acting sometimes through those secondary causes, like a free will, like the free will that is able to be tempted. We'd have to define presence. We know that he is present and, and, and he is active in all things whatsoever that come to pass by providence, but he doesn't sin. Uh, it's the only way I know to say it, but it's, a, it's the mystery. It's the mystery of the incarnation. How can God be God and also man? And the, and the natures are not inter, and, it, and it's, we always say it's distinct, but never separate. And I could use that same phrase. God is distinct from sin, but never separate from sin insofar as his decreeing presence. But he is not himself sinning. And it's the mystery that you're going to find in almost every doctrine. It's going to be the doctrine of Christ and his incarnation will be the doctrine of Christ and his ascension in relation to the church. He's distinct, but never separate from the church by the Holy Spirit. He is dis distinct, but never separate from, the decree from those actions that take place on earth. But we can't confuse God with those actions. It's just the mystery of the Trinity. It's the mystery of God who, again, is outside time, space, and created order that somehow interacts with that created order is all present without ever being the created order. I just said a whole lot, very important things right there. And you have to go back and re-listen to it because we got about 10 minutes and I'm going to have to get us to the suffering question and the contentment question. But that's a great question. Thank you. Is there one? Julie, you just look like you're one. You're dying to ask something. I'm going to let you do it since you've been so quiet. <laughs> the thing that when I was reading all this, I wonder about things like unnatural disasters, mm -hmm. hurricanes, mm -hmm. and tornadoes. Um, you know, 
there's certainly there's not sin involved. Yeah. It's, unless, you know, sometimes I think maybe the created order in the fall, it just starts going crazy in and out. But where does the, and the suffering just seems so. Yeah. Let's, let's hang on to that question. Could you, I'm going to get to it. No, no, no. Can, I, can, can you do that? Because I'm going to build. Uh, to answer your question, I want to get to number six, and then we're going to answer it. Can you do that? Because what I'd have to do is answer it with this, and then we'll do it. So I'm, I'm not putting you off. Look at number six. Let's, let's build the, I'm building your argument right now. I can tell you're so disappointed in me. As for those wicked and ungodly men whom God is his righteous judge for former sins doth blind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace. There's that language again. And that's really what you could say we're talking about. Whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts which they had and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin and withal makes them over to their own lust, the temptations of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they are hardened themselves even under those means which God used for the softening of others. Now, what is he saying there? Again, it's back to this, you know, God withholds the grace of uh, certain graces, and but that enabling the secondary cause to affect sin, even if God is without sin, he is still, though, decreeing and, and Lord over sin. And that brings us to number seven, as the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposes all things to the good thereof. There's your God causes all things to work together for good comment. You know, I'm confident this very thing that he began a good work and you will perfect that good work kind of thing. Okay? And it's the divine providence that assures that. And now we're getting close to your answer. I hope you're tracking with me because I'm building a case to even put under it these horrible disasters. Because now we're going to have to ask the question, do we, do we really believe that all things whatsoever happen have a purpose to draw the church, the elect, we're going to have to say that, Paul did in Romans 9, to greater intimacy, and, and to the glory of God, to live with God and to his glory. And so here, here's where I want to look at suffering here. All of this raises the question of suffering in the world. Does the reality of suffering work against the knowledge of God? Is suffering an ultimate problem? And that's what we're all wrestling with. Well, of course, no other issue reveals our perspective of life than the issue of suffering and evil. And here's, here's, uh, here's the short version of the struggle. A perfectly good and all-powerful God would not allow evil. There is evil, therefore God does not exist. Or you could fill in, God is not love. God is not present. God is not sovereign. Let's just put that one in there. God is not sovereign. Because I don't think y'all are wrestling right now with does he exist. God is not sovereign. And I've, uh, you know, I'm not saying you're wrestling with anything. The unpacked version this, these, of the syllogism, it's a true syllogism, would go like this. God is by definition all good, all-powerful, and all-knowing. Right? And this is what you're talking about, Julie? An all-good God would want to eliminate all evil. An all-powerful God would be able to do anything he wanted. An all-knowing God would know how. <laughs> if evil does exist, then God, and, and let's say evil is, is the, the curse upon humanity that creates tornadoes, that, that destroys whole cities, and little innocent children get killed. And I don't say that without empathy, hopefully. Um, that's what we're talking about. 
if evil does exist or if these things, then God is either not all good, all powerful, or knowing. If God loses one of those attributes, he stops being God. Therefore, God is not sovereign. Really. He is not present. Really. He's not all knowing. Really. He's not all powerful. Really. Okay? Sounds like a good argument to me. Let's go home. But I think that's what we're, we, we, we as Christians are afraid to say it, but that's what we're, we're probably down deep feeling about these kind of things. And that's when we start to think, ah, there's got to be another way than this idea of sovereignty. But again, what are the options? Chance, dualism, karma. So, what's the assumption? I've been, we've, we've always been talking about these presuppositions. What's the assumption that, that's, that's flawed here? Where, where, where did this all start? How did we start? Did, remember the Cartesian Revolution? Where did all of this start? Where did the presuppositions start from? From us, our perspective. The, guys, this is that playing field thing I keep talking about that we talked about in our very first lesson. If you didn't listen to our very first lesson, which unfortunately didn't get taped, the second part of that longer meeting, so you have to listen to it, the one that we did about five years or three years ago. But if you, you don't want to listen to it and go back to it to re-get this, if you haven't, because this is really important. It's so important that we understand how, how significant secularism is working into our lives, as Christians even. And we don't start with the presupposition, there is a God. And now we're back to everything we started five weeks ago, working and unpacking, what does that mean applied? There is a God. God is immutable, all those, those attributes. Therefore, we're reconstructing a whole, we're reconstructing everything we believe over that presupposition. What is creation? What is, what is, how do we understand all things whatsoever that comes to pass? And where's that? We're, we're turning everything, the Cartesian revolution, we're turning right back on its head. And that's the assumption that we are being tempted with every time we get into these conversations. The fundamental assumption is the ultimacy of evil or, or this or what's happening in this life. So no, think about it. What if you were to start the problem this way? If God exists... Well, we've learned, if God is God, then there, he does not allow any utterly pointless evil. There is no pointless evil. There is no pointless event. God works all things together for good. Now, if you believe that, and it's in Scripture, you know that, I just quoted it, Romans 8, then there is, I'm, I'm turning their argument on their head, or that devil argument inside of us, secular argument on our head. If God exists, he does not allow any point, utterly pointless evil. And that's, the presupposition comes, and there is pointless evil from our perspective. And that's true. I, can't, I don't know why these horrific things happened last week. And we all know what I'm talking about. I don't know. Not in a specific manner. But I do know if I read scripture and understand why history and providence act ultimately. And therefore God is not sovereign. That's their thing. The theo response, the theocentric response versus the secular response is going to say this. If God exists, he does not allow any utterly pointless evil. God does exist. Therefore there is no utterly pointless evil. Now I want you to, to, to think about this and think about what you read in scripture. And tell, ask me if this is not true. 
You see, theology interprets suffering rather than suffering interpreting theology. Or better, God, the presupposition God, interprets suffering, not suffering the, pre the ultimate presupposition, the way I perceive it as now reinterpreting God. Let's get those things there. I'm going to say it again. The right way is that God interprets all things whatsoever comes to pass, including suffering. The secular way says suffering, from my perspective or vantage point, is now going to be allowed to reinterpret God. And he can't be sovereign. Look at the scriptures. It's just amazing if you'll start to look at the stories in, in the scripture. We talk about Job, of course. But, but it's just amazing how over and over and over and over again through all of redemptive history, suffering, pains, even the, the fall and sin, all of this stuff is presented to us as something that is purposeful, that God governs in a manner to accomplish a redemptive glorifying purpose. And of course, thinking about Romans, we exalt in hope. It's really boast. We calcametha in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, we calcametha, we that is to, to boast, if you will, in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation, and see what they're going to do? They're unpacking it. There is a God. Therefore, now I'm interpreting in a tribulation or suffering from that presupposition. And that, what does it do? The scripture is going to tell us it's going to bring about perseverance. It's going to bring about proven character. It's going to bring around hope. It's, it's going to be a kind of hope that is not fickle, that's not uh, carnal, that's not secular. It's a kind of hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. And what comes next is the gospel. And I, I didn't quote it here. And this is where we get to the gospel and how he died for us even while we were sinning, etc. Romans 8, same thing. I've already quoted that whole thing. First Peter, Hebrews, we, won't, we don't have the time. Great quote by Lewis. Um, you know, beyond all doubt, his idea of goodness differs from ours. By the goodness of God, we mean nowadays almost exclusively his kindness. What easily satisfy would, would be a God who said of nothing, would, said of anything we, we happen to like doing. What does it matter as long as they are contented, he would say. We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence. Kindness merely as such cares not whether its object becomes good or bad, provided only that it escapes suffering. It is for people whom we care nothing about that we demand happiness in any terms. If God is love, he is by definition something much more than kindness. And it appears from all records that though he has often rebuked us with contempt, he has paid us the intolerable, I love this line, compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most exorable sense. And there's some great quotes here. I won't go through them. And that leads us finally um, to this idea of uh, what, what I do talk about in number nine there in your handout is what should we expect in this life? And this is a study that I did a while back. And, and I look at the uses, how the words, you know, where do we find the various words in the Greek for suffering, pain, whatever that would be. And it's amazing how the conclusion will be that in this age between Christ's resurrection and his ascension, in this age wherein we are in a process where sin is being put to death so that our inner person will be renewed day by day in greater intimacy with Christ, that we should not, that suffering is not something that's extraordinary for a Christian, but quite the contrary, by Christ's own words, we're told to expect it. 
And so now we've got to process it within the doctrine of providence the way we earlier talked about. As somehow related to drawing us in greater intimacy with himself for the glory of God and our salvation. And so look at these passages. Look at it. Look at this. I just, if nothing else, just get the effect of all these scriptures we're, that we're, we're coming through here. Just, all of this starts to begin to build this worldview. Look at that. It's amazing. And so um, I hope you'll read that. There's a wonderful uh, uh, book, um, The True Bounds of, of Christian Freedom, I think it is, by, uh, what's his name? I'm just blank. Yeah. Bolton, Thomas Bolton, a Puritan. And then what about contentment? This is where we'll, 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 we'll have to stop. It's interesting to me, and there's a great book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, and we've reviewed that. There's a PowerPoint on the website on, this, on a seminar that I gave on, on contentment, and you can look at that. It might be a simple way to do it. But think about what is, how is contentment related to providence, do you think? Accepting it, maybe? Yeah. There, now, now I'm, I'm troubled with contentment. Um, what could be wrong about being content? Huh? Yes, complacency. But would you say? Yeah, that's right. Or even blase about. Well, that word blase. Blase about anything. Ambition. You know. I mean, no. This is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the lack of ambition the lack of persistence or pursuit or hard work or intellectual curiosity, um, seeking answers, having questions, even being what I'd call in a sanctified way, a sanctified skeptic, as in, I believe, Lord, help me in my unbelief. That's, that's not, we're not against those things. So what is that contentment? You know, Paul will say, of course, there's great gain in godliness combined with contentment. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. Or, you know, go down to, to um, I think it's the one I want to look at here is, um, therefore I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For wherever I am weak, then I am strong. You see, the contentment is, is not that we want to see, we're, it's not a kind of determinism Sovereignty leading to determinism in a manner that I, the secondary cause, that's who I am in this process, the secondary cause, my free will, is not now ambitious to make decisions and actions that move history in a certain fashion. I mean, for me not to be content, let's say, with, um, I mean, I'm struggling with something right now, and, you know, just, just with, with what God's doing through my ministry, let's say. Well, that could be sinful, or that could be holy depending on what we're doing with providence here. It's one thing to be fighting the providence of God and, and having a, 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 a pity party about it. That would be discontent. Pity party, maybe it's an emotion that you'd express. It's another thing to say, God, thank you for what you've done and, and what is it that you want to do next kind of discontent. Even as the contentment is in my providence to be where I'm at right now with the question, what's to do next? Is that, I'm, I'm fleshing it out a little bit. Let, let's look at it this way. Um, it's kind of stated negatively by Burroughs. 
the murmuring. And so what we're getting at, I think if we were to talk about contentment, the opposite of it is a murmuring spirit. So would someone read that quote? So here's his confession, and um, what do you see here? Um, it, it's ultimately a sin against God's providence. Rather than the question, what is a faithful response to God's providence? It's a second-guessing, murmuring, vexing, whatever all these words he used. It's a vexing over, over whatsoever has come to pass. See, there is a difference between asking the question, you know, God, whatsoever has come to pass, and taking that as from the hand of God, and being unsatisfied with my response to that in a manner that promotes me to do something more or else or whatever. You see that? Am I making sense? So, so it's the difference between... Um, even, even about my sin, I mean, there's a kind of contentment that I'm a sinner. I, I, I didn't say that on tape, I know. Um, <laughs> but, but, it's, but it's a contentment in the providence of God that is revealed to me that I'm a sinner. That's, better, that's a better way to say it. And a discontentedness with that that is a response to that contentedness. Because, but a discontentedness with that that promotes me not to reject God, to doubt God, to resist God, to murmur against God, but to say, God, I confess, as he has, that I am a discontented person. God, help me be content. So he is, he is not content with his sin or not content with a circumstance that he sees could be approved upon even if he is submissive to the reality that it is what he is facing right now. So I think that's kind of the difference. You know, it's, uh, how do I say it? It's not fighting God about the whatsoever comes to pass, the circumstance that's in my life. It's, it's, it, it's, it's submitting to it. It's bowing to it. It's saying it is what it is. You know, for me, I know I say that a lot about my eyes. It just is what it is. You know, I remember when Sandy Casella was on her deathbed and I was visiting her and, and she, this is one of the most powerful moments of contentment that I've ever seen. Some of you remember Sandy Casella. I don't know if many of you do. Uh, a wonderful godly wife, mother, with young children who was dying of cancer. And I'm having that pastoral visit right before she dies. And I said, uh, how are you doing, Sandy? You know, how are you doing? Are you, you know you're dying. How, how are you doing? I mean, those are literally almost the words I said. And she just looked at me and said, you know, Preston, it is what it is. You know, uh, it's, she was a content person. It wasn't that it is what it is. She just, she had given up in a good way. Now, she would also go to tell me and 
to assure me that she really is 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 uh, she you know that she has assurance in her faithful Savior. She's her greatest struggle is worrying about her children. But she had assurance that God would provide for her children, and she was believing that by grace through faith. So she was ready to pass on. She really was. And I pronounced the benediction on her, literally, in her bed, moments before she died. Um, it is what it is. Now that, to me, is where I want to be. Because that enables me to move on <laughs> with a faithful response. That's what I hope I'm conveying here about the providence of God. This did not happen because of chance. It did not happen because of a dualistic evil against good of co-equal deities. This did not happen because of karma and I'm going to beat myself up for whatever I did that might have brought this about. This happened because God decreed it. It is what it is. He is God. I'm at His mercy. God have mercy on me. What am I supposed to do now? I think that's the doctrine of providence applied. Thanks for listening to the School of Discipleship. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listened. If you liked the show, please consider a five-star rating. Share it with your friends or write to us. For this episode's show notes, visit our website. Until next time, this is CPC Podcasts.